Okay, and welcome to another episode of the Sheepdogs podcast. We have a special guest here today, Peter Burley, a good friend of mine, actually, from grade school. Nice. Uh, yeah, Peter was born and raised in Cincinnati, Ohio, and he went to an all-boys Jesuit high school, St. X, as it's known, St. Xavier High School in Cincinnati. He went to the University of Dallas and studied philosophy and is currently finishing a master's of philosophy degree and teaching high school in Dallas. And last but definitely not least, he married his wife, Helen, in May 2021 and has a daughter due this summer in wow. May. So, Peter. Congratulations. Thank you. Great to have you here, Peter. Yeah, welcome. Yeah. Glad to be here. Peter's awesome. And I'm so, we were so excited to have him on because we're going to be talking about philosophy today, specifically the book, uh, Joseph Peepers. Am I saying that right, Peter? Yeah, that's right. Okay. Yeah, Joseph Peepers. Leisure, the basis of culture. Uh, so, yeah, before we get started, Father Jacob, could you lead us in prayer? Sure. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for Peter uh, being tuned in with us here today. And we thank you, Lord, for all those tuning in also to listen. And Lord, may we continually know your grace, your peace, uh, your rest in, your in our lives. And like St. Augustine, may we know, Lord, that we ultimately only find our rest in you and we continually just know your wisdom knowledge and understanding and we ask all this in jesus holy name amen amen, amen. the father amen. the son and the holy spirit amen Well, thank you, Father Jacob, Johnny, and Michael as well. Uh, it's always a pleasure to talk about philosophy in the free time, especially in the mornings too. Uh, so this is a pretty small book. It's just a little bit over 50 pages. It's more of a, a pamphlet or a lecture. Uh, I won't pretend to be an expert on it because uh, most everything I could say is something that anybody could look up. But uh, Pieper was born in Germany in the early 20th century. And uh, Leo the excuse me, Leo the Thirteenth published Attorney Patris in 1879, which gave a special significance to Thomas Aquinas. And so, in the kind of 20th century, there's this whole new wave of Thomas coming in. People like Jacques Maritain, and then eventually Carol Wojtyla, later to be known as John Paul II. So everybody's kind of uh, rabidly interested in Thomas Aquinas, what he has to say and how he's going to make a difference for the church. So Pieper's in that league of uh, early 20th century Thomas. Interesting. How popular was Thomas Aquinas before uh, when you said attorney Patris? Yeah, that's right. Uh, so Aquinas was actually kind of not really liked at all. Uh, people were suspicious of the fact that he was combining Aristotle's principles with a Christian worldview. They basically saw it as, uh, applying paganism to Christianity, which in the end is just going to dilute uh, Christianity. It would sort of be like, uh, I don't know, making Greek mythology fit into Catholic understanding. It's sort of like, what, how on earth does that make sense? So I think, I think about 50 years after Aquinas died, he was basically written off as anathema. They published a document and he was condemned. And so from about 1325 until 
1879, virtually nobody read Thomas, which is kind of shocking for us to think about because uh, your average homilist is probably going to quote him. But for something like 500 years, nobody was talking about him. Nobody's interested in him. Uh, Leo XIII comes back and says, wait a second, actually, Thomas was really on to something with combining Aristotle into Christianity. So it's this new, new brand, and it's sort of something that nobody's looked at for a very long time. And now they're interested in what on earth can we accomplish when we begin to study Thomas again. So that's why we have this new kind of interest, fascination, at times obsession with Thomas. So Pieper has that Aristotelian Catholic philosophical background. And this book is based on a lecture that he gave in Germany in 1947. So this is two years after World War II, right? People are getting their footing and rebuilding a culture. They're establishing lives for themselves and thinking about the new world and what it holds. Heidegger was also a big name in talking about technology and German culture. And he's writing about the same time, publishing uh, his work, What is Technology? in 1957, so about 10 years after Pieper. So kind of all of Germany is buzzing with this question of culture and rebuilding and what does the future look like. So in section one of Leisure, the Basis of Culture, Pieper sets the tone and gives a, a kind of overview of what he's interested in. He's interested in culture, generally in leisure, but it's not a leisure in the way that we think of it. Uh, it has nothing to do with basking under the sun in the Caribbean with a margarita and you got the sea spray and you know you're sitting in a in a hammock underneath the you know a tree or something like that it's a it's a higher and more restorative kind of leisure Pieper says that culture depends on leisure and leisure depends on cultus uh, that can be defined in a couple of ways the first one would be veneration or worship so what you give worth to uh, cultists could also be a way of life, the way that you uh, conduct yourself, and it could actually also be labor. So leisure is dependent on uh, where you basically put your work and apply yourself, where you, you get your energy as well. It's kind of multifaceted understanding. So that's where we get the, the basic idea that culture is downstream of worship. In other words, uh, if we want to change our culture, then we, have, we actually have to look upstream into where we're getting our energy from, generally speaking. Do I, does anyone have any thoughts? Like, what does that mean? Like, culture is the downstream of worship? Yeah, it's just fascinating to think about. I mean, often you hear that quote about, right, like, uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast, that kind of, you know, you hear that end of, like, the importance of culture, but, like, it's so fascinating to hear yeah, about a liturgy and religion and that kind of thing, how it flows or should flow from, uh, yeah, culture should flow from that. So can you tease that out a little bit for us? Well, I mostly think of where we put our energy today. Um, you have a lot of Netflix culture, a lot of sitting in front of something and taking it in, but not really digesting it. Uh, I had a professor who noted once that whenever you get done with a Netflix episode, they give you five seconds to click off, <laughs> which ordinarily when we're watching something, we take it in in order to reflect on the world and to kind of let it change us in some way. But we've actually gotten to the point where we, uh, the things that are giving us the entertainment don't want to let us do that. And so we live kind of before entertainment or before things that we're just taking in. And so that ends up with uh, 
our culture looking non-reflective in some capacity, insofar as it's a Netflix culture or something like that, it's going to be non-reflective. Mm-hmm. So the, the simplest way to put that would be whatever we put ourselves in front of, whatever we take in actually changes us and we become like that in some capacity. I think we can even do that with like good, good things. Like I'm reading this Bible in a year. Sometimes I'm like, Oh, I need to get two days in. And then I read two full days worth of scripture and I actually don't let any of it sink in. And then is it, is it really right. doing any good for me? Right. Just yeah. the production side of it. So it's time to yeah. think. Yeah. When you're actually getting competitive with yourself, <laughs> competitive with God, even. Right. I'm going to read you so much. You have no idea. <laughs> yeah. But it's also very American. We, Father, you've talked about a lot in your homilies about how serving with uh, the sisters of Mother Teresa and uh, how they're always about praying with everything you do instead of just trying to get it done as fast as possible. That That's really struck with me this year. Right. Yeah, the efficiency could just kill us sometimes in the U.S. I think as far as like finding leisure, finding that time to reflect that uh, unexamined life, right, that we become because we're just like, okay, I could do more and it feels great to do more. So let's just do more and we'll think about it later. <laughs> yeah. And then sometimes I do the more and then I end up feeling very tired and empty and gross. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. That, that's exactly what Peeper's got his, uh, his thumb on the pulse of. Uh, so he's, he's objecting to our modern understanding of work our modern understanding of use and where we apply our energy. Um, so, so he thinks that we get the order wrong. Nowadays, we live to work rather than work to live. We live in order to go to work from nine to five. We're spending uh, kind of the best part of our days going to do things and then coming home to our friends and our families, just utterly gassed and exhausted. So Peeper looks back at the ancient Greeks and he's looking at the way that they live their life. And he says that they don't live their life in terms of work, but they live it in terms of leisure. They see life as primarily about being leisurely and work as sort of the thing that gets in the way of leisure time. So ideally when you have leisure time, you're sharing meals, you're meeting people in their world, you're participating heavily in politics. And obviously the Greeks had issues of their own, uh, warfare being one of them. Uh, they were also pagan, but we won't hold that against them. <laughs> So uh, it's not a white column paradise, but they did have something pretty essential to their culture that we don't have today. Uh, Nowadays, we think of ourselves in terms of work. They saw theirs in terms of leisure. So people are kind of looking backwards saying, wait a second, these guys are really onto something. And yes, they were different than us and it's a whole different world, but they, they have something that we could really benefit from. And that was how people lived for a long time, striving for the good life, however it was, and working as much as you needed in order to get the good life. And it was ideal if your dad was famous, if he was some kind of a politician or an accomplished businessman, because that means that you had the money. So education at the time was seen as the privilege of the people who had enough time to kill time studying ideas, right? Not very practical at all. Uh, You could take the time to learn instead of learning a technical skill. That'll be important for later, but for now it's important to see that uh, our world would be just as foreign to them, right? If they could just zoom up to our speed and uh, see what kind of a world we live, it would be just as foreign to them as their world is to us. So is there, the question they kind of have, or that we're having looking at them is, is there such a world where people can just be? 
They don't have to work all the time. Their, their life doesn't center around work, but you can actually just be, you can just live. And so kind of taken all together, Peeper is getting straight several ideas. Number one, what is work? What's the point of work? Also, what does authentic work look like? What is a culture as well? What is authentic leisure? And then how does it all fit together? How can we synthesize it in a way of life? Wow, what you say there, it's just like, that's really impactful to me, um, especially in terms of like us living, living on a college campus now and what like our lives are really centered on here in many ways. Uh, and it's definitely not leisure. I, I look at my leisure time being the um, Friday afternoon, Saturday, when, you know, I, I've, I've worked the entire week basically doing schoolwork and I know Sunday night I'm going to have to do schoolwork again. So like Saturday is my only time. It's almost like I work in order to get to this like time of leisure, which is, it's almost just like kind of like this passing thing where it's like, Oh, I get to, I get to spend this afternoon doing nothing. And that's like my leisure time. <laughs> and before I need to go back to work. So when you talk about the Greeks having this life centered around leisure rather than work, it it is it is very foreign, very un-American, uh, and yeah, it's just an interesting concept. I've never heard that before. And and people I hear all the time. I heard it walking in the hall yesterday. Oh, it's almost the weekend. Like that that's the line. You honestly, it's Tuesday, and people almost <laughs> the weekend. Uh, yeah, how does that all fit in, Peter? Like, I mean, yeah, you asked that question, but like especially. Americans, but also like Catholics as Catholic. Yeah, there's a reason why God wants the Sabbath. God didn't make uh, didn't make the Sabbath just for Himself. He made it for us. It's intentionally a, a break time that we're supposed to have in order for us to get back in tune with the way that things are. But yeah, I think you're 100 right. People are saying the weekend is almost here. I even catch myself saying that. How are you? Huh? Well, it's Friday. I'm like, wait a second, that's backwards. <laughs> and uh, we, we even dread Mondays too. Um, I think, uh, yeah, I think somewhere there's a statistic that the, the highest average of suicides are on a Monday morning because you go back to work and you realize, oh my gosh, I have a full week ahead of me. This is going to be just like the last, you know, however many decades you've been doing it. And that's when people have the most despair. That's when they're looking around saying, wow, I really do have to work until I'm 65, devoting my whole life to a company that I'm gonna stay at for probably the next five to 10 years, and then I'll move on to another company and work a little bit longer, and, and then I'll retire and kind of wither away, and then I'll die. And it's like, wow, that's, uh, that's kind of the world that we've come to idolize in the name of uh, business and industry and technology. It's kind of a bleak one. Yeah, how can we not be a worker like that like there has to be some sort of difference difference that we can we can change in our mindset so that we're not just going through the motions and end up staying in the same company for however long even though we're not passionate or not really finding any purpose or meaning in that mm -hmm. well <laughs> that's where paper comes in so i think it, it's kind of obvious that the answer is not structural in the sense that the answer is not to just sort of readjust the hours of your day, right? We, we tinker with that in, in business today. Well, people are actually most productive when they come into work for, for just five hours and they really hustle for those five hours and then they get off. And what you really want is just happy employees. Uh, that, that's, that's a matter of rearranging. That's not a matter of, uh, 
of revivifying that doesn't do anything to the soul. It just does something to uh, your schedule, your biology. So that can't be the, the end cause. So I think uh, yeah, Peeper's got some answers for us as far as leisure goes. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Wow. So in section two, Peeper just kind of goes straight for the throat. He wrestles with the phrase intellectual worker. Uh, I, I guess this was a phrase at the time. I've never actually heard it, but uh, it, it's a key idea of this section and he's got a number of meanings so we can kind of roll through each one slowly. Overall, Peeper laments the fact that work mentality has entered into the intellectual sphere, into the field of thinking. So he thinks that we've gotten to the point where we say that we understand something and that knowing actually looks like aggressive observation rather than having anything to do with passive contemplative receptivity. Uh, our knowing is aggressive. We, we seize upon something. We kind of stare at it very intensely. And it doesn't really have a whole lot to do with sitting quietly, receiving, not trying to do anything intentionally. We don't really sit and reflect anymore. And it's a bit difficult, again, to get an idea of what that means. <laughs> so how does he make that clear? He brings in Kant. And if anybody knows Kant, he is not clear at all. <laughs> so small crash course on philosophy, Father Jacob, you may be able to help me out here if I stumble on something. Uh, Kant was a German Enlightenment philosopher. And his theories about reality uh, and how we come to know things are in the branch known as idealism. He's what you call a transcendental idealist. I'm not exactly sure still what that means. Uh, but in short, for Kant, knowing a tree, right? you look at a tree, and you say, what does it mean to know what that tree is? For him, it's, it's not about any kind of a sensory experience where you, you knock on the trunk and you, you bend a branch and see how it bows. You observe the colors of the leaves that have fallen down. Maybe you kick a root to see how tough it is. For Kant, the way to know a tree is in light of its eternal form, the metaphorical shape it takes when it exists as a tree. So when a tree is existing, that's its form, its treeness. So the way to know a tree for him is basically to get in touch with the idea that you have when somebody tells you, think of a tree. In his mind, that's the thing that is most real about the tree. And he thinks that the way that I get that idea into my head is by the kind of stitching together of a number of details or, or categories. So it's got a time. It's got a place. It also has color. It's got a position. It's uh, extended in space, if you were to think about it in a kind of grayscale 3D matrix. Uh, the branches have a mathematical arc to them, but it's not perfect. He thought that I don't actually know the tree that's in front of me. I just know how it appears to me. The only thing that I know about the tree is the concept. Now, Aristotle would have fierce fighting words for Kant, and so uh, we don't have to like him for that reason. But to Kant's credit, there is something to it. This or that tree may pass, may go away, may burn, it may be washed away in a flood or whatever. But my idea of a tree is going to last. There's something permanent about that. Now, a bunch of intellectual blood has been spilled over Kant, you know, hundreds of books, thousands of books. But the point for Peeper is this. It's the job of the mind to perform intellectual gymnastics every time you encounter an object. Kant thinks, Kant thinks that this goes on for every object that I see, 
every time I open my eyes and look around. That happens every time. So my mind is constantly combining, separating, comparing things, distinguishing one thing from another, deducing. Peeper's main interest is that with Kant, knowledge becomes discursive. It becomes about processes. It becomes about efforts. And so even knowing takes labor. And doing philosophy is about work. Kant actually says that knowing something is a Herculean effort. So your mind is busy all the time and people are looking around, okay, where do, we, where do we begin on the question of work? Even in our understanding and our thinking and our knowing, the highest point that we have in our faculties, we think that thinking is work, knowing is work. And he's worried about the, identifica the identification that we're making there. So on the one hand, work is a very applicable thing, right? We're talking about going into a nine to five, but Peeper's taking the, the broader perspective. How do we think about work? Well, our thoughts about it are ones that require work, we think. That's interesting. I, I feel like we were, we were up here with the jobs and we just went like dug a hole and like got to <laughs> right. like everything, just like any philosopher would do, which is incredible. Yeah, Father, have you ever studied Kant? Man, he's a tough one. Yeah, I guess I have, yeah. I don't know that I have a great grasp on him either, but yeah, it's, uh, yeah. Typically speaking, the Germans are not easy to understand. <laughs> Peeper's an exception. <laughs> so my, what I'm getting from that is basically even our, like on a deeper level than our work itself, how we think and how we think to know even is work. And we need to change that if we want to truly have leisure. Correct. We need to get into kind of a mode of existing or a mode of seeing the world where not everything has to be a matter of effort. Mm. That's, a, that's a toxic way to live when everything you do is dependent on some kind of a work. Mm. So you can't, you can't really understate how much of an effect Kant had on philosophy. He is to kind of modern philosophy what Aquinas was to medieval philosophy in terms of how earth shattering he was. Uh, I think both of them would bristle at that comparison, but uh, I, I think it's a pretty fair one. He's also similar to Nietzsche and how much he's affected our modern thinking. A lot of people today are Nietzscheans and Kantians and have no idea. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, it really does seep in in a deep way where sometimes we don't even know it. And that's, uh, I think to Peeper's mind, a dangerous thing when we don't even know how we are thinking. So Peeper trots out Kant as an example, and it, he's certainly confusing to most Catholics. He still is to me. Um, I joke that not even Kant understood himself, but uh, Kant is not entirely irrelevant. Peeper is lamenting the fact that we think it takes effort just to know something. We, we live in what he calls a work-a-day world, a world where everything's defined in terms of work. That's the, that's the first principle that we've got when we're living, even thinking itself. So like I said, right away, he's attacking the highest part of the problem of understanding work and how it's infected our world. It seeps in very deeply. Wow, interesting. Um, yeah, and you're throwing out all these names. Uh, these are names that I only hear when I'm watching a Jordan Peterson video and he's like explaining <laughs> to me somehow how this is somehow important to my life and I just kind of listen and don't understand what's going on. Um, but I don't know, the question that's coming to me is like, is thinking hard philosophy 
is hard. Uh, Peepers against working for something. What kind of uh, world is he imagining? Yeah. So Peeper is, is mostly opposed to Kant. He's opposed to the idea that thought is purely discursive, that thought in the final estimation is measured exactly by effort. The idea that uh, knowing takes work. And so he's not opposed to work per se. He's opposed to making thought purely discursive. So he thinks that uh, knowing taking work is problematic for two reasons. The first one, that knowing something actually becomes the fruit of unaided effort, or so we think. That there's nothing kind of given in the world, nothing that's already there before us. There's nothing inspired, nothing that kind of comes to us in a moment. And if you think that knowledge takes work, then you can't actually take anything for granted. And you end up feeling that you have to prove everything and that reality itself will only stand if you prop it up. If you're the one who's made uh, all the arguments and you're kind of holding up reality like Atlas, uh, that, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, I think, because reality's there whether we like it or not. So the second issue of knowing taking work is that if the two are identical, if every time we know something, it has to take work, then we actually become suspicious of anything that is obtained with ease. We, we become suspicious of anything that, you know, takes a short amount of time. And so nothing can actually be a gift for that person who thinks that everything has to be born out of toil and trouble. Uh, in, in such a case, we become kind of allergic to anything that is gentle or slow or inspired. And I think we can already see that that's pretty antithetical to the Christian understanding, especially when it comes to prayer, especially when it comes to the creation of the world. Uh, yeah, whole, whole different world that he's dealing with. So Pieper then mentions Thomas Aquinas and how he understands wisdom in the Summa. Uh, for him, wisdom is, is not so much uh, a kind of attribute that we say that he is a wise man. It's, uh, it's more understood in terms of being a virtue. So it's a habit. It's something that you accrue with effort, uh, ironically. So it's a, it's a habit of mind that we have that we're able to pick up on difficult truths. So he says that the... Uh, he says that virtue essentially regards the good rather than the difficult. Hence, the greatness of a virtue is measured according to its goodness rather than according to its difficulty. So in other words, the more difficult isn't necessarily meritorious. It has to be higher and good in addition to being difficult in order for it to be worth our while. Uh, it doesn't make sense to do something just because it's tough right? We have that in kind of tough guy culture today. I'm going to do it just because it's difficult. Mm -hmm. But in a certain regard, that's really stupid, <laughs> right? You could try to run through a brick wall and that's really difficult, but that's not heroic in any way. Mm -hmm. uh, you want to do it because it's awesome and also tough. So we don't want to make the mistake of thinking that a thing is worth it simply because it's difficult. Now, it's true that highest things do need effort. But Effort isn't the cause of our knowing. It's the condition for knowing. Knowing happens to be difficult because our minds are dark. It's not the difficulty that makes it happen where once the difficulty is there, yeah, now I can guarantee that I know it. 
certain things just come to us. So Pieper makes a lot of comments about work and effort, and he, he's careful not to default to the opposite. We're saying that everything is easy. He says that true knowledge is not romantic in the sense of romanticism. It's not, he quotes, or excuse me, I quote of him, it's not consulting the oracle in one's breast and possessing wisdom that's whole and entire. So uh, wisdom is not sitting around and navel gazing and kind of feeling lovely about the world. Knowledge does take effort. And so Kant is right in that sense, but it doesn't take as much effort as Kant thinks. Effort is the, the condition for knowing something and not the cause of it. Pieper also brings out the medieval tradition too. So the days of Aquinas, Bonaventure, Scotus and the boys. And he argues for the distinction that they made, the distinction between intellectus and ratio. So ratio is what we would call discursive logical reasoning. It's uh, one that puzzles things out. It's what you use when you're playing a word game or when you're doing a mathematical proof, right? You really got to get into it and take this in and pull that out and then see what happens and kind of engage with it in a, in a real deep way. Intellectus though is, is another kind of reasoning that we have. It's the part of the soul that just sees the truth. It doesn't use a process, it doesn't have a medium. It's, it's just what happens, like light hitting the eye or sound hitting the ear. Right, we've got an apparatus for you know having that, but it's not it's not a, a process by which we come to hear something. We simply hear it. There's no effort in that. So ratio takes effort, but intellectus does not. It's very docile and teachable. It's very quiet and receptive. It's keen, so it is listening, but it's also perceptive. It, it's trying to understand and. It's not kind of straining forward like you would when you're trying to hear somebody, but it's, it's more so sitting quietly and trying to uh, maybe hear the way that the wind is hitting this or that tree, um, you know, noises coming from the left or the right or something like that. That's more what it's like. It's what you do when you're, you're on the front porch and you got a cup of coffee and you're watching the cars pass by and just thinking about your life, just having a lovely afternoon. Okay, so, wow. Okay, so you said there's ratio, is that how you could? Uh, yeah, ratio. Ratio and intellectuo, uh, intellectus. So, yeah, it seems like one takes effort, one really doesn't. It's just like intellectus. It's just kind of like you're letting it happen to you. What's the danger when intellectus, like you actually cannot use your intellectus? You, you're only used to having everything take effort. Yeah, I think, uh, well, like he said, nothing can be a gift for you is mm -hmm. one thing. Uh, you can't just, you can't just accept anything, right? It always has to be, you know, how much was that? Or how'd you get that? Oh my gosh. You can't <laughs> uh, have anything gracefully. But I think too, uh, ratio in a certain sense is kind of artificial in a sense in that, uh, it, if it's built up, it's very distinct. And so if we think that, you know, if I roll out of bed and first thing in the morning is I start blasting music, hyping myself up and getting ready for the day because this day is going to be mine and I am not going to be pushed around today, right? The, the kind of extreme 
mm-hmm. of, uh, of masculine work culture, right? Hustle culture. You, you don't really feel like yourself. You can't feel like yourself because you're, you're hyping yourself up. You're riding that energy as long as you can. And uh, most of the time what emerges after that is a kind of fear or a kind of sadness that you've kind of been departed from yourself for a time. You have been out of touch with yourself. So when you come back at the end of the day, it's very easy to kind of continue that. All right, I'm going to prep for the next day. I'm going to get myself so ready. I'm going to drink this tea and I'm going to be so relaxed. I'm going to play this classical music and I don't really care who it is, but it certainly relaxes me. Uh, that kind of hype up artificial culture, right? It's, it's built up. That's what I mean by artificial. It's not exactly the same thing as being fake. That's just a whole different world to live in. And so if we constantly live in that, in some sense, we're out of tune with what's actually going on, not just in ourselves, but you can't actually see the undercurrents of how your coworker is feeling. You're not thinking about, oh, well, what is their family like? How was their morning like? You, you start to see the world in terms of use and, uh, you know, at its most extreme exploitation. So it's just a whole different way to, to live your life. And he's very worried about that. What happens when we, when we make everything about work and everything about effort? Ooh, yikes. So um, I'm trying to, I'm really trying to like take this all in as. Use your intellect. Yeah. As, <laughs> <laughs> Don't think too hard about it. <laughs> yeah, I really can't. Um, yeah. As the, I probably know um, the least about any of this of anybody in the world, but. I really want to know, like, kind of on a practical sense, why is this important to me in some way? Because I'm thinking about it, and it seems like I'm doing work now to think about how I'm supposed to be doing work. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe in your own life, um, like, is have you applied this in a practical sense, in, in the sense where, like, you're intentionally um, thinking about the way that you're thinking, I guess? Um, <laughs> So yeah, I uh, like, do you have any like insights from how like kind of these concepts could be applied to somebody's life in like an intentional way? Yeah. 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 It is kind of a paradoxical thing. I'm going to think really hard about how to take it easy. I'm going to take it easy so hard. Nothing is going to get in my way of relaxing and letting go. Um, it, It is a kind of paradoxical thing. I think putting your thumb on that is, is really appropriate because it's not something that we can force. Uh, we can't force letting go. That's like trying to force yourself to fall asleep. At a certain point, you have to let yourself relax. But as far as you know, what to do in the daily life, I, I think silence is the biggest avenue for doing that. The Power of Silence by Robert Cardinal Seurat is a really, really good book. Um, he just keeps droning on and on about silence. And it's great because you're like, okay, where's the action, man? When are you going to tell me something good so I can get this book over with? And he's sitting there like, no, no, no. Silence is this. Silence is that. I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm trying to get something out of this, man. You're not really helping me out. But, uh, you know, that just speaks to the same attitude that we, we want to, to utilize things. We want to put it to use so we can get something out of it. So I think, I think silence is a really important avenue. Can you sit quietly and just, take in the world as it appears to you. Uh, can you observe the world as it is, not trying to change it into something else, not trying to put it in terms of something else, but just simply be and observe it, right? In its most simplest way. Wow, the sun is out today. 
How many clouds are in the sky? What was it like yesterday? Do I remember? Is there a cloud in the sky today? Is it super blue? Well, look at the blue that's there. Is it kind of more of a green blue? Is it more of a purple blue? Is it a real blue blue? Kind of observing the world as it appears to you. This is where uh, John Paul II, I mentioned that he was one of the new Thomas. This is where his tradition with phenomenology becomes relevant. Uh, we could go on so many tangents about phenomenology. It's awesome. Uh, but their idea is basically, how do I experience the world? I'm experiencing the world. Yes, I'm, I'm moving through it. But, but what can I do when I think about how I'm experiencing the world? Um, how certain things appear to me, how they go away. Um, there, there's all kinds of ways to do that and all kinds of things to be said. But I think that does, uh, it does bring up something for us that we can actually be reflective as we are active. We can be contemplative even as we are busy. So we're, this podcast is mostly for college students. And yeah. as college students, a lot of our job is to just study and learn. But I think oftentimes our university system is more just, yeah, let's, let's crank this out so we can get A, so we can just barf this on the exam and then go to the next class. So how does this fit into kind of like, how can we become better learners studying of our, of our majors? Mm -hmm. I think step one is to become less distracted. Uh, well, sorry, step one is to go to class. <laughs> step two, when you get to class, don't be distracted, right? I'm a big advocate of using good old fashioned pen and paper, right? It's a shame that we have to say that that's old fashioned. Uh, I'm against the new way of, nice. you know, whipping out your laptop, you get out one note and you type down everything you can think of. You're not really engaging with the world when you are typing down everything that the person says, right? It's on, it's on your laptop, great, which means that you have it for the future, but you don't yet have it in your mind. And if it's an important lesson, you don't actually yet have it in your soul. So the education really doesn't mean anything at all unless you have somehow taken it in, right? If you want to, to pay a lot of money to have information not in your head, but somewhere else, just buy the textbook and dip, right? Because it's all there, but that, that doesn't make any difference to you. And I think we all recognize that. That's kind of a stupid thing to do. You can't just bail. So I think taking time to, well, that also means you have to do the reading that the teacher asks you to. You got to read the chapter and, you know, not just glance over it, moving your eyes across words and through pages, but you got to think about it. Can you, can you summarize what you've just read? Or did you just stare at the page for two minutes, decided you were tired with it, and then you move on to the next thing? To answer those questions, so, no. Yeah, absolutely not. <laughs> yeah, I never do that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a difficult thing. And it does not come all at once, which is why school takes so long. It's because we have to learn those habits. Um, so I think little things like that, you know, are you really participating in your education? Are you getting the most out of it that you can? Um, I think we make the mistake of thinking that school is about, uh, yeah, it's basically just about having the college experience, right? Where we're going to a party is uh, what you really want. And the way that you get there and you have that whole experience is by paying a lot of tuition. That's kind of how we see it today. You get a lot of seniors in high school saying, I just, I want to go somewhere where I can get the full college experience. And there's a little bit about that. That's kind of heartbreaking. Like, Oh, like that's, that's what college is really about. I guess that, that's what it's, that's what it's become. Mm -hmm. Does Peeper... So I would say, 
Yeah. Uh, practically, what can we do? First thing, I think don't walk around with headphones everywhere, right? Don't have your phone and be moving at the same time. Uh, don't be walking and texting and then bump into somebody. Like take the time to observe the people who are walking around you. See what they're like. Wonder what their world is like, right? Not in a, not in a weird kind of observer way, but just, oh, that's a person. They're walking by. They're kind of like me. And then when you sit down, here's one thing that I always try to measure. Like how is my spiritual life doing? When I sit down in a doctor's office or something like that, do I immediately lunge for my phone because I'm afraid of somebody looking at me or I'm afraid of interaction or even worse, am I too afraid to sit with myself that I feel like I have to get up? That's a sign that something's gone wrong where we actually need the silence at that point. Mm -hmm. So I would say, don't listen to music while you're moving. Don't touch your phone while you're moving. Uh, be hesitant always to put on music and to pump yourself up. If you're going to class, really go to class. Do go to class. When you do, try as much as you can to participate in the reading, right? Textbooks are dry, right? It's a shame that we've gone to just a pure textbook culture. But as much as you can, try to understand what you're talking about. You know, look up a YouTube video on it uh, if you need help understanding it. Another thing is like, learn how to cook, right? Not, not in a condescending way, but you know, I didn't cook much before I got married. But now that I'm here and my wife, you know, she knows how to put a dish together. I'm having to learn about like, how do spices interact? How does the heat work on this or that pan? A cast iron heats up a lot more evenly and it stays hot for a lot longer. Okay, so that's gonna affect how things work. So all that's to say, you start to get a feel for what the world is like and it means something to you. I think the more we can participate in the world and the less we navel gaze, wonder about how I'm feeling, wonder about what my emotions are, staring at everybody else, kind of being competitive, right? That dude, I probably hate him, but I won't as long as we're friends. That girl, maybe she's cute, but I'm not going to talk to her, right? Seeing the world in this kind of comparative, competitive kind of mode. I think breaking out of that takes time, takes a lot of effort. It's not going to be accidental. Uh, it's only going to happen on purpose. But I think what people are alerting us to is that kind of a world is better than the one that we're in. So on a societal level, mm -hmm. so what happens when everyone walks around with headphones in when no one actually observes and our whole society, and this goes on for years and we, we never learn to use our intellectus and just keep working and trudging. <laughs> well, we've all seen Wally, -E, right? We all sit in chairs and get fat and we don't talk to each other. Yeah. We all watch the same programming. Um, I heard somebody kind of, put out on LinkedIn, you know, what does the future look like? And this person speculated, the future looks like everybody has some kind of quick, uh, quick way to transport themselves. And they get on a device in the morning and there's a list of tasks, deliver this, deliver that, right? Amazon groceries, whatever, everything's subscription. And your whole job, basically, assuming you're not going in to uh, supply those subscriptions yourself, your whole job is just going to be to get on your bike or to get in your car and to transport something to somebody else who's paid for it and doesn't want to leave the house. Um, that scares me, <laughs> right? Imagine this, you, you know, you get somebody their groceries and you go and you knock on the door and they don't say anything because they're sitting in Oculus staring at the wall and everybody in the room has on their AI, you know, eyepiece. And it's just in their own world and their own board meetings. 
that's terrifying to me, right? That's a terrible world to live in. There's, there's no community or fraternity there. Um, I can't remember if I answered your question. <laughs> no, that's, that was my question was like, what happens to our society when, when we all live that way? Yeah. Yeah, so the, the person who takes off the headphones, the person who kind of exits that world is seen to be a crazy person, right? Plato in the cave in the Republic. The person who gets out of the cave, who goes up to see what the real world is like and isn't looking at puppets and shadows anymore, they realize that it's a breath of fresh air. It's a whole life that they didn't even know was available to them. And they have to go back and tell people about it. But the stark difference is so great that the only way that they're going to believe it is if you show them, right? You could try to describe, oh, well, shadows aren't actually real. It's actually all about the, the things that the shadows are of. It's a shadow of something. Well, that's the real thing. They're like, what? No, that doesn't make any sense. All I've known for my entire life is my iPad because that's how I was raised. When my, mad, when my mom would get mad at me, she would shove an iPad in my face. And, you know, that's kind of the world that we're inheriting, unfortunately. Um, how do you convince a person of what the good life is? if they're so used to virtual technological everything, you're going to look like a crazy person. It's going to be countercultural. It's going to be rebellious. And uh, you know, you're, you're going to seem like a, like a flimsy romantic, you know, the world is, is about sitting and being and well, it, it sounds really wishy-washy and silly, but, uh, but it's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, last night we had a great talk uh, here from a guy and he was bringing up this quote from, G.K. Chesterton about, you know, if uh, the night sky only came every 1,000 years, like everyone would be talking about it, you know, it'd be in the news, it'd be all over the place, all over the internet, basically. You know, so just the beauty of things we encounter, we don't even take time to notice, but how can we help people understand that, or like ourselves, you know, and I think so much is, I love for you mentioned nature, because a lot of it is just getting outside of our world of technology, and just being present to the people around us, but then also being outside too. You know, I think of St. Francis who like spent most of his time outside and he found God in everything, but also in our own lives. Yeah. Like, okay, we couldn't just walk by everything and keep on our sunglasses and our ear, you know, our pods and all that. But when we slow down for a moment, we can encounter true beauty and the reality of the world. And God is all around us trying to speak his love to us. So yeah, I know I need to keep myself on task just to encounter that too. But yeah, part of it too is, yeah, here it's the school, it's helping people to to break out of that, like you're saying the iPad or whatever it may be, or the drugs or the drinking, to be like, okay, guys, real life is actually better than like these states of mind that we're trying to place ourselves in to avoid any suffering. Mm-hmm. And yeah, helping people to encounter that is something I've been trying to learn how to take people to the next step, and I haven't found the answer yet. But anyways, uh, just a little bit at a time, I think, to show people that Reality certainly can be tough, but just the beauty, the true beauty that's there and not just the passing, uh, whatever, fake thing that we're sold just to kind of hold us over. Yeah. So anyways, that's one one thing that's been on my mind this week. And uh, yeah. I think you're right on about the sunglasses. Light hitting the eye is an instantaneous process, right? We're, We're immediately present to the world. But if we wear sunglasses all the time, in a certain sense, there's something that's fundamentally off about the way that we're seeing the world, Mm. right? It's all shaded in different ways. Uh, I guess I could take that analogy further and say that it's polarized. Um, (laughs) But if you think about that going the other way, 
right? You can't see the world accurately, but you know, you understand, you just have to apply a, a small addition, but people can't actually see you. Mm-hmm. And that's the whole point. That's why we wear sunglasses indoors is I don't want somebody to look at me in the eyes. Uh, I want to keep this kind of veil of hiddenness, the kind of a, a mask of mis- mystery. Mm-hmm. So I think that the sunglasses, you're right on the money. I think you're hundred percent right about Francis of Assisi too. Uh, there's not a whole lot of concrete in Assisi, right? Not a whole lot of perfectly paved areas where he can just walk up and down, right? That guy's probably twisting ankles left and right. <laughs> He's walking up a hill and the grass is uneven and oh, there we go. There's, Right. Yes, it hurts, but there's something that's kind of natural and, and human and almost desirable about that, that nature is working on you and you're, you're present to it and you're not, uh, you're not utterly removed from the natural world. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, we have, uh, we have our perfectly air cushioned shoes that uh, provide us the perfect arch support so we never have to pay attention to our feet. And we work on concrete that is always very nicely paved. Uh, maybe we walk on tile in our workplace and everything is pitch perfect. And the only thing we have to pay attention to is what other people think of us. Ooh, there's no real like hearth to gather around of like, how was your journey? What was it like to get here? Um, no kind of bonding over that. Nowadays, uh, well, I drove, I, sorry, I left my air conditioned apartment to come into my air conditioned car to get into my air conditioned work, right? So my whole goal is, basically just not to sweat all day, right? Even the suits that men wear now have like flex fabric in them so that you could basically play soccer and go to work in the same outfit. We don't even want to change what we wear anymore. And, uh, you know, like if you can ride a bicycle and still go to work, there's something that's kind of weird about that, right? In the same outfit. It's kind of like, uh, I, I have to convince students, please don't wear sweatpants to high school. Because if you look like you just got out of bed, there's something that's not dignifying about your work. If you have the same outfit of hoodie, sweatpants. So all I have to do is just roll out of bed, get in the car. And, well, that's a, that's a kind of sad way to live. There's no ceremony to putting yourself together. There's nothing kind of dignifying about the way that you're conducting yourself. So yeah, I, I think you're 100% right, Father. Yeah, it also reminds me of you speaking about just that idea of sometimes we're so worried about usefulness of things and course in seminary you know is hitting the books all the time doing all these like practical things which was great but then also we would have these work days when it was just like 80 guys going into the woods with machetes and cutting down this invasive species of honeysuckle oh yeah and of course our rector was a philosopher but uh yeah it was so great I mean it turned out to be one of my favorite things of seminary just being with the guys in the woods cutting down these things people were probably like why are you doing this by hand why they're just going to grow back but just the joy that was there, being with the brothers, being with guys in the woods, working hard and just enjoying the day and realizing like, this is actually what we're meant to do. Uh, not just like read all day and yeah. It's because so, you need it. Right, right. It, it's yeah. so against like everything that I, I'm, I'm, I like drive myself to be because I did a sales internship and you're all about efficiency, effectiveness. Mm-hmm. There is no room, not even a minute in the workday where you can take like a second and be like, evaluate, you know, how am I, how am I doing? How's, how's the sky look today? You know, it's mm-hmm. all about performance. And so this, this is just like really mind blowing to me. You get that 120 hour work week where your boss says, I need your phone on all the time. I should never not be able to reach you. And when I call you, I need you there. There is no excuse. I need your email. I need your phone number. It's like, 
wow, we are utterly inundated by work and utility. And the question that I always have to ask is why? So you can get money, so you can buy stuff, so that the time between now and your demise is reasonably enjoyable, so you can recover from what work did to you? How on earth is that a good plan of action? Yeah. But, you know, we don't even have enough time to stop and think about that. And if, if we do, it's often overwhelming. We don't even have the categories to consider, you know, un- unless you're, you know, born into some kind of religious upbringing. We don't really have the categories to consider like, oh, there, there might be a God and, and there might be, you know, an afterlife and things may not be that bad. They could be good, actually. Um, Plato and Aristotle were both pagans, right? They didn't believe in the Christian God, but they were able to reason to an afterlife that things might be better, that it, uh, there's something about being with the divine after we go. So it, we can do it, but the modern world doesn't let us think in those terms. It doesn't let us contemplate in those terms. Wow. I actually think we could have like a 10 part podcast with you on this. Uh, <laughs> this is, we didn't even get through like any, any real we got through maybe two sections of the book. How many sections are there? Uh, we, we got, there's five, and I think we got through like one and a half. Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Not too bad. This is good. It's no, great. it's really good. It was great. Yeah, actually, it was making me think too. So one big dream we have here is just to help people discover this depth of life uh, and really encounter so many questions here on campus um, to be able to like have this response to the culture, you know, in so many ways. So we're hoping to establish kind of like a little school of philosophy or, you know, natural theology, some of those things, just help people realize like who we are, who we're made to be, the reality. So anyways, if you're ever back in Cincinnati and want to teach, we're hoping to start in the fall. (laughs) We're going to start kind of our own school, probably the classes at Miami. But uh, yeah, because people are hungry for it. You know, people realize like I'm made for more than just, yeah, you know, the, the addictions that we have and whatever technology or these things and people long for it but how to like open that up for them to help them to understand that they are made more for more from that and then how to bring that to others too on campus because yeah sometimes people just think like well it's just these you know the pleasure of the world that's going to get me to to wherever but to have that expansion like actually the world is more amazing than we even know and what does that mean so yeah yeah the uh that kind of the good life is actually proper to us Right. We're, we're living in a world today that is not fit for us. Right. We, we've gotten used to it and it's what we have. But in the end, it's not where we're supposed to be. There, there's something that's more proper and more fitting to us in light of who we are. Yeah. And this conversation has been super helpful to me because I am that person that wears headphones everywhere and sunglasses and has their hood up. And <laughs> when I walk to class, I, I look at my feet as they're taking the next step and I don't, I don't look around at all. Um, so yes, yeah, definitely been impactful, changed my thinking a little bit. So hopefully next time um, I'm walking to class, I can have the willpower to, uh, to take a look around for one. So yeah, thanks for your insight. <laughs> mm-hmm, absolutely. Well, fellas, thanks for having me on. This has been a pleasure. Yeah, it really has been. And we, I definitely want to do some, some more, possibly a part two episode in the future. So yeah. we'll look out for that. And to close this out, uh, Father, could you listen to prayer? Yeah. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time. We thank you for Peter uh, sharing this wisdom and insight, Lord, for we know we are made for more, Lord, and that you've given us so much. And may we never 
sell out uh, just the, the big, beautiful things you want us to experience, to know your love, your presence, your truth, uh, and just beauty in our world around us and those we encounter. May we continually just strive to know you, Lord, uh, in each and every encounter of those people we walk by and the trees and the, the flowers and just to, uh, yeah, know all these things do indeed proclaim the glory of God and proclaim uh, your love for us, Lord. And may we encounter that in some new way today and just share that too with the people we encounter. We ask your blessing upon Peter, upon us, upon all those tuning in today. Commend all this to you, Heavenly Father, through Mother Mary, as we pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Awesome. All righty. Thank you, fellas. Thanks Thank so much, Peter. Peter. Good luck, Father. All right. Sheep dogs out.